Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Lynn Gamwell, a lecturer in the history of art, science, and mathematics at the School of Visual Arts in New York. She has created, and I use the word advisedly, a book entitled Mathematics and Art, which not only should you get, you should proudly display in a prominent place when friends come to visit. If the friends don't pick it up and are entranced, then either get new friends or upgrade your current collection. Lynn, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Lynn, what inspired you to write this book? Uh, Well, actually, I I was invited to consider writing it by someone else. It was someone else's idea. Uh, I'd written a previous book on on, uh, science science and art for Princeton University Press. And when that was released, uh, the math editor... Uh, suggested I consider this the uh, writing a similar parallel book on math and art. Uh, and, and, but in, in what I found with both books, both the science and art and the math of art, was that in uh, that there was a lot of modern and contemporary art that was inspired by science and mathematics. That's actually one of the surprises that I got when I was reading your book. Um, Your book includes the diverse fields of art, philosophy, mathematics, and physics. What is your educational background? I have a bachelor's degree in philosophy and and a doctorate in um, art history. And and, in math and science, I'm uh, I'm self-taught. And I could say about that, as far as my, um, I, I learned math and science on my own after, with some help, but, you know, occasionally from a tutor after I'd finished a doctorate. And, and what I found, in, uh, especially in the math books, was that it was, it was difficult for me to understand some of the, uh, uh, of the material because of the diagrams, which I felt from a visual point of view coming from the art world, were, were not capturing the abstract idea. And, and so I vowed in this in, in the book that you were talking about, uh, the math and art book, to, to do a set of math diagrams that I felt would help the people in the art world understand these abstract concepts. And so that became a whole project for the book, if you understand. There's a set of, there's a set of uh, math diagrams. And they're very lovely diagrams. In fact, the entire book is lovely. But I think one of the things that we're going to touch on later in the conversation is the fact that the two different groups of people, namely the artists and the scientists, tend to not only see the same ideas in different ways, they look at pictures the different ways. Because when you described how difficult it was for you to understand the pictures, I'm thinking how difficult it is for me to understand abstract art. (laughs) Anyway, uh, let me ask you a question about your job. Your title is Lecturer in Mathematics, Science, and Art at the School of Visual Arts. What exactly do you teach as far as math and science goes? 
Well, let me correct you. My title is I teach the history of math and science. I don't teach lab science. Um, and, and so I'm teaching it from a historical perspective, and I'm linking it to the art of the era, okay? Because the math and science is describing reality, and artists are describing reality. So I link it to the artwork. These are, these are art students. Uh, yeah. No, go ahead. Um, because I was thinking, we teach history of mathematics as well, but it's, uh, it's probably more mathematically intensive than it is at, uh, uh, at the School of Visual Arts. But it's interesting to learn these things. At least you're exposing them to the things that we as scientists know and love. Yeah, the, the, the book, that uh, the math and art book that, I just, uh, re- that was just released, I mean, that'll be a textbook for a course that I teach. You know, that'll be it'll be used as a textbook. It's got 13 chapters, you know, for a 15 week course. So uh, anyway, that that's the basic idea of it. Well, I'm going to congratulate you if you can manage to get your students to get through that book in one semester, because for me, it would be uh, uh, it would definitely be an undertaking. But I'm not as young as I used to be. Um, <laughs> well, they're already, I mean, it's a course I've taught for years, but without the book. So they're already getting through it. <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> OK. Um, speaking of the book, it's really an amazingly beautiful coffee table book. And it doesn't look like you just threw it together overnight. How long did it take you to create this book? Well, it was 12 years in the research and, and writing and then one year in production. And And let me say, too. It didn't start out to be a coffee table book. Uh, it, it was just going to be a, uh, a book that my previous uh, book on, on science and art is, is half the length and, uh, and is never described as coffee table book. But the history of, of math, unlike science, it begins so early and it's global from the beginning. And so it took a lot of words and a lot of pictures. The, anyway, the book kept growing. Uh, and uh, it wasn't the my intention, or the or the, and the publisher definitely resisted it getting too big from the beginning. But in the end, it's it's a heavy uh, uh, book that's you know over five hundred fifty pages, and it's uh, it's weighty. Uh, it is that, and it's weighty in several senses of the word because it's deep. I mean, it's it's really a work of scholarship, and I commend you for sticking with it, because when I think of some of the projects, uh, investigatory projects that um, I've been involved on, I looked at one question for five years, and that was, you know, that exhausted me. So uh, uh, I'm just amazed that you were able to stick with it. You must have had a wonderful feeling when you're finally sensing that the end is near. Yeah, it was great to have a copy actually in my hands. (laughs) Yeah, I believe <laughs> I believe it. Just out of curiosity, um, since you said that you're planning on using this as a text when you teach your course, as you assembled the various chapters, did you test market it with your students to see how uh, how it worked with them? Yes, I mean I've been teaching this co- I've been teaching the course in, in in just like the book for oh maybe four or five years, and I've taught a science and art course for. Since 2002, since the previous book came out. Uh, so, yes, I, I, de- I definitely experimented. Well, I must admit, I'm heartened by the fact that at the College of Visual Arts, 
the potential budding artists are exposed to math and science because we in math and science sort of feel that this get, uh, that uh, our subjects get short shrift whenever um, artists gather. So I'm glad to hear that that's the case. Oh, oh yes, um, yeah, definitely. It's a uh, you know it's a school. It's a school. It's an art school that has uh, humanities and and math art. Uh, re- requirements as part of it, and that's in a tradition that goes back to German education. I mean, American art schools are based on a a curriculum that was imported after World War II, and it it has um, uh, and and it it, it requires it, it's based in the Bauhaus School of Design. If you know some of your readers uh, or listeners might know, uh, and and that's and that uh, uh, it's a long tradition in German education, which is what. The School of Visual Arts and most art schools in America are based on. That's very interesting. When I started looking at this book, I kept thinking of C.P. Snow's book, The Two Cultures, in which he thinks of the scientists and the artists as belonging to two very different groups with entirely different worldviews. Do you agree with Snow? Do you think of your book as a bridge between these two groups? Well, uh you know, when when I think of Snow, I mean he was he was focusing on the education of these two groups. Um, I mean, everybody's got the same worldview. You know, if if any anybody, I mean, he wrote this in 1959, as I recall, and he was in Britain. Okay, and that in Britain in the in the uh, 50s and 60s, it had a more traditional Beaux Arts education that didn't uh, that that focused less on science. Anyway, I mean, that's a separate topic, but it's not like the Germanic uh, and American style of education for artists. I mean, uh, uh, but anyway, but but in his, I mean, I think he was looking primarily at education. Everybody in the 50s and today has a scientific worldview, even if they go to mass on Sunday or temple on Saturday. If they woke up this morning with a toothache, they'd go to the dentist. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I mean, we all have it. And I have a dentist appointment later this afternoon, so thanks for reminding me. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's, I mean, we all have that, that worldview, and, and it's, it's just, you know, how much, um, and, and some of the artists, I should say, too, in, in, the, in my book, I mean, I, we're all influenced by the scientific worldview. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the view of nature that we live with. And uh, in some of the artists that I, uh, they're not students of mathematics. They are simply reflecting the world they live in, the culture they live in. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, Yeah, I can certainly, uh, I can certainly get that. What was the most difficult aspect of creating this book? Well, well, just the usual practical problems of, you know, finding time and uh, keeping the complex records straight. But yeah, but just, just some of the practical things. I mean, the of, of course, there's the, the intellectual issues were more or less difficult, but they were very engaging, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, d- d- difficult uh, difficult projects are interesting. You know, uh, the, I think most people in math would agree with that statement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. That, it was very it was very very engaging, and uh, uh, as far as Difficult as far as things that were uh, problems, I would point to just the usual practical things that most anybody has with a project. I guess that's reasonable. 
Since you begin in Stone Age times, your book covers over 5,000 years. Is there a historical focus to the book? Yeah, the historical focus is modern and contemporary art. Uh, and, uh, I mean, that's my field. And, uh, but, you know, I mean, I'm, as far as my, my own background is historian, there's 13 chapters in the book. And the first chapter gives a historical, broad-brushed overview from the Stone Age to around 1900. In other words, that gives the background. And then, uh, and that's and that's a very long chapter. And it's east and west. You know, it's, it's that's very long. And then that's for anybody can read that. Any art student or any art person can read that and get a, just a sense of the basic approach of mathematics and how it's how it's um, uh, influences the arts. And then the other 12 chapters are on the modern era from, you know, say late, late 19th century to the present. And then I dip back into the past as needed for background in the other chapters. You know, I could say too, there's a, there's a couple overarching themes. You want me to give those? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. One is the the distinction between the philosophy and the practice of mathematics throughout history, uh, because the, uh, the the practical top the practical aspects can get so complex that they're they're not really discussed in the general public of you know an artist, but the but um, and so a lot of the impact is is more philosophical. On uh, you know what are numbers uh, is is as opposed to two and two is four the actual practice of arithmetic uh, another uh, another theme is that, that I found there's a tension you know dates to antiquity and, and that we feel between the more rationalist rationalist accounts of the natural world. Um, that are you know operating according to deterministic laws of cause and effect. And in other words, we can explain it all. We can understand it. And then the rebellions against such models and the math that's associated with them. Uh, rebe- rebellions against calculus <laughs> as as dehumanizing, and as uh, you know we, that we're not going to be able to figure it all out. You know. And, and anyway, I mean those are those are themes that link. These this historical sweep. Um, I, I'll tell you, I think that's really interesting because it's a perspective you don't get when you study mathematics. And it's nice that somebody looks at these things from an overall uh, from sort of an overall perspective. Like, what are we doing? What are we talking about? Because in mathematics, you just do it. You don't talk about it. Yeah, so and, uh, and where does it come from? Yeah. And where is it going? Well, mathematics sort of looks a little at that. But speaking of mathematics, can you give a few examples um, from your book, perhaps, of the relation between mathematics and art? Yeah. Um, let me give you first an, an example where the artist is consciously using the math. Mm-hmm. OK. Love it. OK. And that, this is uh, a contemporary Japanese artist, Tatsumi Ajima. And um, he's. He's uh, he's re- he's uh, reflecting in his work uh, a Taoist perspective, and this, of course, is ancient Taoism. Um, I mean, Ch- he's Japanese, but I mean, Taoism is Chinese in origin. But the view in antiquity, but is still practiced today. 
in Asia. And so, and so he's reflecting that today. And the, you know, and the, the Taoist view uh, from, uh, from ancient China is that the natural world is a balance of parts. And uh, the yin-yang, the um, hot, cold, plus minus, and that they came into being by self-assembly. Uh, and that, that everything fits together. But that the but that the uh, they they follow the way the Tao Tao means way and the, they follows the way of nature. Okay, and so when we look at reality, we're trying to understand it. It's uh, we look at it. We're looking for patterns uh, that and and that uh, that uh, uh, that self assemble basically. Okay, and he some he some symbolizes this. In, in his work, you walk in and you look at the <clears throat> his work, and it's a it's a grid, it's a blinking grid of lights. Okay, it's these uh, light emitting diodes, these LEDs. Okay, and so you're just you're looking at a screen, and it's um, and so it's just columns and rows of lights, and some are on, some are off, and they're blinking. Okay, and if you stand there and look at it for a while, you might suspect that there's a pattern to it. But it's too complex for your eye and your mind to discern. You'd have to stand there for a long time. You might have to take notes and stuff. And he's doing this. It's like the natural world for him. It's a unity of fluctuating parts. There is an underlying pattern. He's, he's programmed it. But you'd, it, it, it would be difficult to, it, it would be difficult to find or you could find parts of it. Do you understand? Um, yes, because as you were discussing this, I was thinking of a book that was written in the 1970s entitled The Tao of Physics, in which they discuss, in which the author discusses that um, a lot of contemporary physics, and that was, you know, that's basically quantum mechanics, um, reflects this duality of which you speak. So it's not, it, it's a thought that has, a con, uh, that has occurred to very, very different groups of people. It's occurred to artists, it's occurred to mathematicians, and it's occurred to physicists. Yeah, you know, and I can't let that reference get by, though. I don't want your listeners to think we're endorsing this book. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's, in, it's, uh, it's, it's based on, I mean, the, the basic premise of the book, it's written by a physicist, as I recall. Yes. Friedolf Kappa. Yeah, Kappa. Yeah, he's Austrian. Uh, Viennese, but he was he was uh, he was uh, he wrote it when he was um, a visiting scholar at uh, in in Berkeley at the uh, at UC Berkeley, and and he was in a, in some hot tubs and taking some LSD, um, and and he's he's reflecting a maybe he's arguing for a link between quantum physics and the and and the uh, tradition of Taoism, Eastern mysticism. Uh, which, uh, uh, it, 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 you know, frankly, I think he's trivializing a 2,000-year-old monastic tradition of, uh, of, of, uh, of that, that Miyajima today is, is part of. Uh, he's basing it on, um, he, he, throughout that book, he's quoting Heisenberg, Werner Heisenberg, who wrote a book on the philosophy of physics in the, uh, in the 50s, uh, that, uh, 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 that, 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 that inspired, um, uh, this Tao, the Tao, the Tao of physics and other authors to make this kind of leap between 
of the Eastern tradition and and uh, quantum mechanics. But anyway, um, I, I just want to go on record as as uh, not endorsing this book. Um, well, I was the one who brought it up simply because it uh, uh, because um, I was reminded of it when you were talking about it. But why don't we get back to your book? And I'd like to say one of the things I enjoyed about your book was the appearance of themes that are common to both areas of mathematics and art. Um, and I'd like to look at a few of them and start with symmetry, since it's so important in both. Yeah, well, I, in in. in in symmetry, yeah, the the uh, the math of symmetry group theory, um, and that's a and that's a type of math that isn't known generally in the in the. I mean, it's used throughout the sciences, but it's not known by the general public. Uh, I, I have found, and I'm happy when the general public understands arithmetic well enough to use it. Yeah, but they know arithmetic. They know the word arithmetic. They know the word geometry or calculus. They don't know the word group theory. Or what a group is, you know. I mean, it's 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 much less known. Um, but that's certainly true. Yeah. Uh, but but anyway, I mean, it, but this is a good example because there were a co- there were a couple there were students of David Hilbert. They were doctoral students who did their dissertations on group theory uh, at Göttingen. Hermann uh, uh, Weil, he was German, and uh, Andreas Speiser, the uh, Swiss uh, uh, mathematician. And, and they both had an interest in the arts, both of these guys. And they both published books on symmetry um, in the uh, 30s and after that linked our analysis of symmetrical patterns in the natural world with, uh, with uh, patterned Patterns in decor- the decorative arts, basically, and and they were they were read by artists in uh, in uh, in Switzerland, in Zurich, and so on. It, it, you know, in the sciences, it's using crystallography and physics, cosmology, <clears throat> and um, uh, and and in the and, and and again, they just applied it to the decorative arts. And and these are artists that. Um, and th- these are uh, f- uh, mathematicians, I say, that the artists actually knew. Andreas Speiser taught in Zurich, and he, and, uh, he knew Max Bill's work. Max Bill is a Swiss uh, graphic artist uh, beginning in the 30s and uh, died in the 1980s with his long career in, in Switzerland. Um, and uh, he read Speiser, and Speiser knew his work. I mean, they eventually met. Carl Gerstner, who's still living, uh, uh, was a next generation. He also knew Andreas Spicer. And so they definitely, this is a place where you've got artists uh, creating work with symmetrical patterns and following worlds of transformation uh, that are right out and using the, the vocabulary right out of group theory that, uh, that knew these artists. I mean, well, I mean, the artist knew the pieces, and, and you know, can I throw in part of sure. my, uh, part of my part of my research? I went to Switzerland because I I couldn't find enough information about these. I just had a feeling, and I had read some things, but I couldn't find enough information from them that they had published or in secondary sources. And so I went there and uh, was able to interview the nephew. Uh, of uh, David Spicer, who's a, a physicist, a nephew of Andreas Spicer, and his wife is the daughter of Hermann Weil, and uh, 
And the, the, the son of Maxville, Carl Gerstner, is still living, so I could talk to him, and other Swiss artists. And that was extremely fruitful. And I could do work, and I could research in archives there. It would have been impossible to do here because of the, the you know, these are, it's not big enough archives to be copied and, and put on the Internet and so on. So anyway, but so, so I was able to really do a, a, a uh, talk to the people that in, in one generation removed uh, of the people that really did this linking. Uh, of, so it's a very, very good example. Max Bill, Carl Gerstner, Richard Paul Loza, uh, doing work that they're all graphic artists doing work that is symmetrical, based in design, using uh, group theory. Well, I must admit um, that I'm happy to hear that these ideas have penetrated the artistic community because there are some which are uh, there's an appeal to symmetry. I think I once saw a study in which uh, they looked at um, uh, they looked at what makes very people attractive to the opposite sex and symmetry of face turned out to be extremely important, which I found intriguing. But I know that mathematics and art get linked probably it starts with, at least it starts uh, historically, I think, with perspective. And so maybe you could discuss that a little for us. Yeah, well, the the the, uh, the invention of linear perspective you have in mind, right? Yes. Uh, right, yeah. Uh, and, and, I mean, that's a very good example. I mean, it's an unusual example because it begins with artists, and, and it's it's uh, picked up by the math world. Uh, the The... The perspective is it's based on the uh, well the correct the first correct description of how we see the uh, that the eye is a passive receiver of light. Okay, that's a medieval Islamic um, uh, scholar uh, Ibn Al Haytham. Um, I mean, he publishes that, and then that's there are many Latin translations circulating in. Florence and throughout Italy in the early 1400s. And that's the basis. That's what they're looking at. They're looking at the Latin translations, um, their hand translations uh, uh, of, of this medieval uh, Islamic uh, view of the eye. And then it's, it's Filippo Brunelleschi, who is an architect who in the 1430s uh, Designs linear perspective, so it's and it, so it's a very good example because it's a geometric projection from a point to a plane. The point is one eye, the this passive receptor of light, and the light is reflected off a plane. And then he does he he defines linear perspective as a planar. He's thinking of it like a window, the picture plane, uh, as an intersection of that visual cone. Uh, and it's uh, and then it catches on. I mean, our it, it it fits the time because artists at the time are shifting their viewpoint from uh, thinking of uh, reality as it, being in a in a faraway world and existing in the present right there in front of them. And so they want to they want to present the saints and um, uh, as as existing in their world. An example of is um, that our listeners may know is uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. That's an example of a construction uh, in using Brunelleschi's uh, linear perspective. And then let me just say what, how it's picked up later. 
I mean, and, and sure. of course, we use it today. And artists that draw today in perspective use linear perspective. It's the correct way to do it. Um, linear perspective is then becomes of interest to mathematicians. They generalize it. You know, it's generalized first into projective geometry, not just a picture plane that's perpendicular to the floor like a painting, but one that's tipped to various angles. Um, it's uh, Poncelet, the uh, French uh, uh, mathematician, and then it's generalized further onto planes that are not just tipped but can be warped uh, by um, Brouwer, the Dutch mathematician in the, in the early 20th century, and becomes topology and, and to planes existing in any dimension. You know, this has been very enlightening for me because I did not realize that when I think of uh, when I think of topology, I think of it arising in a different way because I'm an analyst by nature. And so I think of topology as arising from questions of analysis. But of course, it can also be viewed as rising from questions of geometry. And I thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. And let, let me give you an example of an artist today that use use topology sort of without knowing it, if I can put it that way. I mean, because a lot sure. of artists just get interested in patterns. Um, this is an artist, Jim Sanborn, his name is. Um, he's uh, he, he does photography by projecting patterns. Uh, and in this case, he, he you know, he, he, they were concentric circles. So they're, you know, circles with a small and then larger and larger diameter, concentric circles of light. So it's a black you know, black and white, you can get the idea, okay? Okay. They're just internecine. And he projects them from, he projected, in one example, he projected this these patterns of concentric circles on a cliff in Ireland, and he projected it from about a mile away at night, okay? And so it's, the, it's a pattern of concentric circles, and the surface that it's on is contiguous, which it has to be in topology, but it's very irregular. And so it makes a new pattern on this surface. And then he photographs this. He does a time-lapse photograph uh, at night, if you can get the idea. And so these exquisite photographs of patterns of light on a regular surface. And it's a perfect example of Brouwer's topology. The, you, one of the things that I think might interest viewers, or at least it certainly interests me since you brought it up, is whether or not there's a video that can be seen on the Internet describing, you know, how, the, how these patterns unfold in his process of time-lapse photography, because I would certainly think he'd done that. He may have. I, not that I know of, but, but it's just one click away to find out. <laughs> well, I might take that click after the interview. Anyway, the concept of infinity is a far-reaching one, appearing in physics and philosophy as well as mathematics and art. Yes. Um, uh, well, it, it, it's a it's a concept. The concept of infinity. I mean, it, it's it's needed for math because the the numbers are. The counting numbers go they on. go out of ways yes <laughs> <laughs> um, but but it was uh it was avoid it was avoided uh in some in some cases in in uh in the history of math because it it, it easily leads to paradoxes and um uh in anyway our modern uh in, in calculus is 
was in, you know invented to um, uh, in, in part to, uh, to to be able to to measure infinite quantities if you're measuring something that's in motion. Um, but let's just get let's get to modern uh, uses of it because there are uses of it in uh, the, our modern concept of infinity is from Georg Cantor uh, from the late 19th century and in, in his work on uh, tra- the, using the actually doing arithmetic using infinite sounds. And um, it, it, as far as the, I mean, there's, there's a, let me give you an, as far as the examples of artists using infinity, um, I think one of the most interesting ones are in these monuments, monuments to the dead, where I, I, I think, they, they, let, let me describe one for, and then I'll say, well, how it relates to infinity. Uh, this is one by Constantine Brancusi, who's a Romanian artist, uh, lived in, you know, he's from Romania, but he, you know, spent most of his life in Paris, but he did a monument to the, to the Romanian, who had, Romanians who had died in World War One, and he did it for his hometown. And it's a column that, that it, it calls it infinite column, but it's a column made of uh, a repeating form and you get to the top and it's only half of the form. And so you, re- you continue in your imagination. Uh, the, it's, it's as if it's, it's, it's um, comparing the, uh, it's, it's comparing the infinity of time or, or, or in space of continuing up in your, with man's finitude. I mean, I think this is part of the, uh, of the fascination and uh, of, of the concept of infinity uh, and and the, the the reflection. Another is here in, in I'm in New York. You know the uh, the tribute in light, which is which is um, the, the, um, after after uh, 9/11, uh, after the the uh, twin tower collapse, the, the the assemblage of these two groups of lights, but they, they it looks like two beams of light, and it just continues as if forever. Okay. And again, it's a monument associated with death and with uh, man's finitude. Uh, and I think I, th- I think it's a good example of how of of the uh, of the uh, contrast that uh, in 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 the visual arts. Um, I think that you know I think that when we start thinking about infinity, it's a concept that has occurred in it to practically you know to probably uh, every civilization. And they look at it differently. And certainly it's interesting for me to find out how artists think about it, because, of course, my thinking is shaped by uh, Cantor and by the mathematicians who both preceded and followed Cantor. And infinity is sort of rigorously defined in mathematics. And you don't so much think about its consequences. You think about what you can do with it. And it's it's one of the things that when you think about the way an artist might look at infinity is they might have sort of they might see it with a sense of awe that perhaps it loses when you start studying it mathematically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're almost a direct quote from uh, the American artist Robert Smithson. He was a land artist and, and he, uh, he 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 talked about uh he, 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 this is a remark he made during the space program. He said, you know, the space program that it's, we're trying to conquer space and that we should think of it like Pascal and then be terrified of the infinity of, of space and time. 
I, I just thought it was, the, you know, it's it's a nice, it, it's a it's a way of looking at infinity uh, from a from a more aesthetic point of view. Well, my feeling is that with the uh, advent of series such as Star Wars and Star Trek, I don't think we look at it with the terror that perhaps Smithson thought we should. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and philosophers of old have like like Pascal, <laughs> mathematician. <yeah. laughs> um, anyway, getting to uh, another portion of mathematics, calculus is the mathematics of change. And um, I think, and I think many mathematicians think that mathematics changed drastically when it start when it shifted from uh, an examination of the static, such as what geometry does to the dynamic, which is what calculus does. And is there a similar development in art that marked a change from static to dynamic? I can't think of one right at that time. I can, I, I can give you an example of a, let, let, me, let me give you my best shot. Uh, sure. For, from that time frame uh, is the contemporary of Galileo's, uh, uh, Artemisia Gentileschi, her name was, she was a court painter in Italy. She was a friend of Galileo's for uh, uh, for many decades, and she knew his studies on motion. Okay, and she did two paintings of Judith slaying Holofernes. Judith was a um, in uh, a Jewess in the uh, Old Testament who uh, was uh, she was a widow, and she was killing a. Uh, Hole of Fairness was a, um, a general who was going to attack her town, uh, in, and, and she uh, slays him. She sneaks into his tent at night and, and uh, slays him with his own sword. And, uh, and in, in, his, in, her, in her earlier depiction, she did, did a couple paintings of this. In her earlier depiction, she sort of symbolizes his, his head gets cut off. And there's like an arc circle, like a, a half circle of blood coming out. Okay, but after she learned from Galileo that blood that that a projectile moves in a parabolic path, she incorporated this into her later paintings of it, and and the blood oozes out in in sprinkles and in in paths that are parabolic. Okay, now that's it, it's it's. Um, uh, I, I think it's more, it's going for more static in the sense that it's more just a symbol of moving, of moving fluid to really looking like what it is, which is of uh, a, a, a dynamic flow of blood. Well, I guess, you know, when I think of, uh, when I think of change in art, and admittedly, I'm not well versed in art, but of course, I think of Escher. Because there's a lot of change in Escher and transformation, and I'm sure that it antedates Escher, but I think Escher does just such a fabulous job with all this stuff. You, you mean showing going from one thing to another, from like from a fur, bird to a fish? Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He he got he began doing that by studying Islamic uh, tiling patterns, tessellation. Uh, it at the that's a concept in mathematics. Yeah, no, it's a yeah, of course. And he began he before that, you know, he he's Dutch, and he didn't like Mondrian and abstract art, and so he left Amsterdam and went to Italy, where they still did good old fashioned portraits and landscapes. And he by chance, and so his early work is all very realistic, 
And then by chance, he went to the Alhambra in, uh, in Granada, in, in Spain, which is Islamic, and saw these tiling patterns. And that's where it starts for him. I mean, that's where his first work is on tessellation. Is, and and this, this, this movement from one form to another is done by the Islamic tilers in that building. Okay. And he, we have drawings by, by Escher after that building that are, you know, dated they're in the 1930s, mid-1930s. But that's the beginning of his math work. And then he goes on, as you know, to, to study other types of math. But he begins with tessellation that shows the, uh, the movement from one form to another. Well, Picasso, as far as I can recall, um, Picasso sort of started out as a realist also and gradually evolved. Yeah, yeah, he began as a uh, sort of symbolist so, you know, in Barcelona and and, and uh, with his early paintings of, of clowns and uh, and uh, guitarists and so on. And then it was after he moved to Paris that his work became more uh, abstract. I mean, he, he became more the you know there, there was a move in in Paris more into uh, it, it's not non-objective. I mean, there's still pictures of things. A Picasso cubist work is of an object. It's you know of a guitar or or something seen, but it is more more abstracted. But his early work is figurative, and his later work is figurative. He returns to figuration, uh, Picasso, um, in the twenties. He, he does a whole. Uh, classical work he's drawing again from the, from the figure. Um, one of the things in your book is that you often refer to Platonism in both art and mathematics. And I've seen that expression before, not really understanding it. What is Platonism and how does it manifest itself in art and mathematics? Well, um, it, it's, it's a view in, it's a, it's, it, this is, it's a view in the philosophy of mathematics and and it's named for Plato, and I mean he indeed wrote about it. I mean ancient Platonism, Platonism isn't is exactly the same as contemporary, but 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 it's, you know it's basically the same idea. He wrote about what uh, what abstract objects are like. It, 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 he called them the forms. But thinking just of ma- uh, thinking of uh, mathematics, like what are numbers? Um, what is a sphere? Um, we all know what that is. You know, a sphere is all points equidistant from a point. Um, and he asked, well, do they actually exist somewhere? And he asserted that they did, that we, we never experience, we never see a, a sphere, um, uh, a perfect sphere. We see spherical objects like the moon, but they're not perfect spheres. Uh, but, they're, but that they are somewhere. They're outside time and space. Okay, and and so it's it's a it's a it's a view about what you say in philosophy ontology what what they are, and and how we know them. Plato wrote about, in other words, epistemology in, in philosophy. In other words, how do I know a sphere? When I said when I defined a sphere, gave you Euclid's definition of a sphere, you understood it, and all our listeners do. Okay, we all how how is how is that possible? If we can't see it or touch it, it's it's we do it by intuition or cognition is the is the translation of Plato's term. And so that's the old view. You know, it's a view about what abstract objects like numbers, uh, triangles, uh, spheres are and how we know them um, it, today. The in, in, when we say Platonism today, 
the, the controversial question is almost all what, what they are, is ontology. You know, do they exist or not? Okay, because mo- in math, most mathematicians assume that they exist somewhere. I mean, they take it as given that their, their, their work is about uh, a, a structure that already exists. In other words, they're, they're discovering it as opposed to creating it. Um, and, and, uh, I mean, that's, you know, somebody's done surveys on this, you know, it's like 75% of most working mathematicians would say that they get, sit down and then, and then they're making it all up. It's not all in their head that they're, that they're, um, describing something that is preexisting. Um, the, yeah. And, and, uh, the, in the arts, the, the way you, the way this is manifest Platonism in the arts is that artists like Max Bill, who we mentioned before, I mean, that, or, or Pierre Mondrian, Henry Moore are examples. They're trying to visualize underlying forms in nature, like um, uh, with Henry Moore, the, the structure of the human body in just simplified forms, or Max Bill just doing a circle or a sphere or a triangle, um, and and or a modron just doing squares or rectangles. Well, what is it about? These are the underlying forms of reality of the natural world, and they're uh, they're imperfect copies of triangles or or or, or circles that exist out time, outside time and space. Um, I'd like to skip a little bit ahead to find out how the creating the book uh, affected you. For instance, did you make any discoveries about art that surprised you? Well, l- let me give you one um, that uh, that surprised me about Platonism. Okay. <laughs> sure. Okay. Uh, well, be- because abstract objects, it, you know. Uh, um, uh, exist outside time and space, you know, and, and that Platonism is, is linked with, I mean, I mean Plato thought they were divine um, and uh, that all of the forms were gods that were divine. And, um, and it gets linked with um, Judaism, which of course pre-exists, uh, I mean, exists before Plato, but, but it gets linked with the Judeo-Christian tradition. And so there's a long association of Platonism with uh, religion. Uh, and with with Christian with Christianity particularly with the Judeo Christian Islamic tradition the Abrahamic religions okay um, and as um, you know b- building uh, t- temples with uh, uh, to the God of Abraham with with a spherical dome because it's representing the uh, the perfect sphere beyond time and space and so on and and anyway what what I found was that that there's a lot of resistance or that there's a lot of resistance to Platonism today because I think because of its long association with religion, that people are uncomfortable with it, Mathemat- that in people in the mathematics world. And, um, and I found myself viewed with suspicion, like I was a religious missionary or something disguised as a scholar because I was getting a sympathetic reading to these historical documents. Do you know, in other words, I always try to put myself in the place of the person who's got who's holding this view, um, and and uh, and, I, and I'm completely secular um, in myself. Uh, but but I came to see it just gave me a feeling for how much resistance there is. Uh, 
that uh, the, the, to to the tradition of, of Platonism because of it's a, it's a long association with religious. It just touches a nerve in, in, in scholars who were otherwise dispassionate. Okay, well, I think that okay. you know, I think that things that reflect upon uh, that sort of can possibly touch upon religion. Um, conceivably do, uh, you know, do touch, uh, do touch nerves with some people. And we're certainly seeing that in today's world. But did you also make any surprising discoveries about math and science while you were writing the book? Yeah, I, you know, I had, I had studied physics. I mean, I had this, you know, uh, I studied physics on my own. And what, 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 just, just realizing how much that's taught as physics is really philosophy of physics. Uh, it's interpretation of the physical data. Um, the, the, exa- the examples of Copenhagen interpretation, and I know that now that's not taught as the only view, but there's still a lot of it around. And, and just how much it was taught as the gospel truth from the time uh, Born Heisenberg announced it in 1927 to around the 60s, you know, after the German defeat in World War II, and that there, in fact, there are other ways to interpret the same laboratory data. I'm used to such dogmatism in the art world. Artists are always saying, my art is the art. This is the way it's got to be, and writing manifestos. But I just expected to find a more, more cool-headed rationalism in the, in the laboratory. Well, I think what you'd probably find is that a lot of mathematicians and, uh, and scientists don't think of it so much as dogmatism, but more along the lines of the fact that science is a very, very conservative enterprise. And if you've got something that seems to be reasonably good, you don't just uh, you don't just shove it aside until you've found either a viable alternative, which I don't think there was to the Copenhagen interpretation. The parallel universes um, interpretation didn't arise until the late 1950s. So maybe it was the uh, you know, maybe it was the only uh, 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 the only player in the uh, philosophy of physics game at that time. No, it absolutely wasn't at, at the same 1927 meeting. Uh, that uh, Heisenberg announced the, the uncertainty principle and the Copenhagen interpretation was also on the platform when the, in the figure of Bohr. Louis de Broglie, a French um, physicist, announced, gave a paper at the same conference to the same audience uh, with Einstein in, in the, in the uh, sitting there uh, that gave an alternative, which beca- is known today as the de Broglie Boom, after David Boom interpretation, that gives a, uh, a, um, a, a different alternative to the Copenhagen interpretation. Well, okay, <clears throat> okay. I know, uh, I know Bohm from, uh, uh, but I think Bohm did most of his work in the fifties, also. Yes, um, so. yeah, but and he was, but he was continuing reviving and continuing the nineteen twenty seven de Broglie uh, paper. Okay. Well, that sometimes happens in mathematics and uh, and physics that it takes ideas a while to emerge, especially uh, if ideas are um, if one idea is championed by people who are uh, recognized experts. And certainly de Broglie was a recognized expert, but I don't think you'd put him on the same level as Heisenberg and Bohr. Well, you'd put him on the same level as Einstein, though, is Einstein supported the de Broglie. Einstein was there. It was in the 1927 audience. I mean, this is this is the source of the famous 
um, Bohr, Eisenbein, uh, Eisen, um, uh, Einstein, Einstein. Space, the, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the debates that start on, on the ultimate nature of reality. Where is, is the moon there even when I'm not looking at it? Uh, this, these debates, what's the nature of reality? Does it, is, is observation um, crucial or not? You know, the, 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 this is when it begins. Yeah, and it's also, you know, it's also a central question. Um, I'd like to take advantage of what may be the only opportunity that I will ever have to talk to an art expert and ask one or two questions that have puzzled me. Um, and I've always wanted to ask an art expert and maybe other people, other listeners would, uh, would relish my asking these as well. So I'm going to hit you with a couple of questions and then I'm going to ask you what you have planned for the future. Okay. And so the first one is, do you consider what Jackson Pollock did artistic? Even though some people may find it attractive, is it a creative endeavor? And, and let's let me be clear. So, and and what and what you're referring to? Uh, are, Throwing paint at canvas. Okay. Um, the short answer is yes. And 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 what you're referring to are his Pollock's so-called drip paintings, and they were made by um, lying a canvas on the floor of his studio, a very large canvas, and dripping paint. You know, movies uh, dripping a canvas. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and yes, the short answer is yes. Uh, but l- let me make an observation about your question, okay? And sure. the whole way you pose it to me, okay? Because this is a perfect example of the CP Knowles, the CP Snow divide that we talked about before. You know, your education is in mathematics, mine is in art. Okay, and so according to Snow and our culture, there's a fence dividing us, right? Okay, I look over into your world, and there are a lot of things I don't understand. I see weird things. You you look over into my world, and there are things you don't understand. Like, Absolutely, like this Pollock, dir- dir- which is why I asked it. Okay, let me give you some advice. Okay, <laughs> you you what happens is I mean you're you're what what uh let me give you a pep talk you're asking the question in a hostile way okay and and you're not going to learn much in the in this way if if you my advice is to keep an open mind and heart and what you should ask me is not why is this guy throwing paint okay you should ask me you know can you explain this to me you know this is i i don't understand in other words be open minded about it okay don't if if you ask me with suspicion, cynicism, is this art? You know, you're limiting your ability to grasp something that's new. It, you know, hey, this looks like a child could do it. You walk away with nothing. Okay, it's like if I ask you, I don't understand E equals M C, the equivalence of mass and energy. Who is this guy Einstein? What is he? Is he going to get away with something? You know, it's not. Take my advice. You know, approach with what you don't know with some sympathy curiosity and an open mind and open heart okay and then you know if if you uh you know if you do all this work to understand art you know are you guaranteed you know when you go to the art museum next time you go to the museum of modern art and see this painting are are, are you going to get some happiness or some pleasure are you going to see some some something aesthetic no but if, if you're not happy with it you'll know why You'll you'll understand the work. Your goal isn't 
pleasure. Your goal is knowledge and knowledge is power, you know? And so anyway, that's my pep talk. Okay. And my comment on this would be my goal of going to an art museum is for pleasure that I want to see Monet. I want to see impressionists. I want to see also people from other generations and how they thought of art. Um, and I'm also willing to admit that I don't know everything. And I'm one of the reasons that I asked that question was because Pollock is Pollock is not only well regarded. Jackson Pollock paintings sold for 140 million dollars. Something that I is n- absolutely never going to happen with me for anything that I do in my entire life. So obviously. People value it and consider it a creative endeavor, and I was hoping to find out why. I didn't, but I appreciate your answering the question. And I'd like to conclude the interview by asking you what you're going to do next, because you've obviously spent a tremendous amount of time on this book, and maybe you want to rest, or maybe you have other projects in mind. Uh, No, I'm just going to take a break. And uh, (laughs) Can't blame you at all. Um, Nothing in the future? Uh, no, I'm, I'm well, I'm thinking of uh, maybe writing something for children. Wow, <laughs> that's a considerable uh, uh, that's a considerable jump. And I wish you well, because believe me, these are, the, you know, when you talk, uh, I've spent some time with children, although I have none of my own. <laughs> and you're hitting a group of people that are most receptive to what you, you know, most receptive. They're interested in in the sciences, they're interested in the arts, and um, I'm sure that you'll have a lot to enrich them with. Um, Lynn, I thank you very much, and uh, once again, I'd just like to conclude by saying uh, to our audience that Lynn's book, um, Mathematics and Art, A Cultural History, is just a beautiful, beautiful book, and well worth the time that and the time that you spend looking at it. And Lynn, thank you very much for the interview. My pleasure.